1: It's strange. I feel like we've been working together for so long, and yet this is your first time coming <laughs> onto Brave Little State to report an episode. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited. I feel like it's been a long time coming. And
2: let's just get started. Can you tell us about today's question asker? Yeah. So today's question asker is named Remington Nevin.
3: Hello, I'm Remington Nevin. I'm from Quechee, Vermont.
2: He lives on the eastern side of the state. And he's retired.
3: I'm a physician. Uh, I'm a former uh, Army uh, doctor. And uh, since I left the military about 10 years ago, I've been assisting veterans with their disability benefits.
2: And he has this kind of really interesting business where he pays pretty close attention to where Vermont's electricity comes from. And it involves Bitcoin. Bitcoin.
3: So I help uh, potential investors uh, learn how to own Bitcoin in a manner that is uh, environmentally more defensible, more sustainable.
2: But Uh, just
1: to clarify at the outset, this is not an episode, thankfully, about cryptocurrency.
2: (laughs) No, it's uh, about something much more complicated, if such a thing is possible. (laughs) 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 And that's our regional power grid. So yeah, as part of his work, Remington pays particular attention to Vermont's electric grid, particularly this question of how environmentally friendly it is, how renewable. And honestly, he told me he's kind
3: of confused upon moving here. Uh, I, I was uh, essentially informed that our power is is mostly uh, clean, uh nearly one hundred percent carbon free. And then most recently, my utility, Green Mountain Power, stated they're 100% uh, carbon-free. And, and yet my understanding is that uh, Vermont's utilities still rely, to some extent, on the New England grid. The New England grid is known around the country to be very dirty, to, to rely uh, in large part on the burning of uh, natural gas and even oil.
2: So basically, Remington is wondering, how can Vermont be both this leader when it comes to carbon-free electricity and having this super clean power and dependent on this out-of-state power that is not so green? Like, which is it?
3: I cannot make sense of these two competing facts. So
2: it sounds like there was another
1: layer to Remington's question, right, about the cost of our electricity.
2: Yeah. So he was looking around and noticing that a couple of Vermont utilities have asked state regulators for rate increases if basically they can raise the costs that they charge their customers. And he was thinking, you know, given what we're hearing in the news about Russia's war in Ukraine and how that's affecting natural gas prices, how can we be both carbon free and also seeing these rate increases?
3: I think... The, the the fact that electricity rates are rising made this question very relevant to a lot of your listeners. I presume that's why it was so popular. All right. So I, I have the, the question. This is this is what I asked. As electricity rates rise with gas and oil costs, to what degree does Vermont's power grid depend on the burning of these fossil fuels?
1: Well, Abigail, I know you've been reporting this episode out for the past couple weeks. You've been working very hard. If you had to describe this topic with one adjective, what would it be?
2: Ooh, well... There was one word that I heard over and over and over
4: again.
5: Such a complex, you know, complicated,
4: obviously
5: you know, pretty complicated. It's a very complicated. complicated. It's incredibly complex. But me, it is extremely
6: complicated.
2: complicated. It's complicated. I kind of learned about it now, so <laughs>
6: it, it's stupid. It doesn't have to be that that complicated.
1: From Vermont Public, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been asked and voted on by you, our audience, because we think our journalism is better when you're a part of it. Today, climate and environment reporter Abigail Giles gives us an education in Vermont's power grid.
2: You might think of it kind of like a big spider web. Or maybe like a big gutter system. So, how
1: much does Vermont rely on fossil fuels? And what are we doing to bring more renewable energy online?
5: If you look at the fine print, this brave little state isn't such a, a leader in the clean energy transition.
1: And later on, where technology and policy might take us in the future.
4: And yeah, what's it gonna cost ratepayers to actually do this transition?
1: By some counts, electricity makes up just 2% of Vermont's overall greenhouse gas emissions. But some say our electric use is poised to grow dramatically in the coming decades, with the adoption of things like electric vehicles and heat pumps. We have support from Vermont Public Sustaining members. Welcome. Thanks to VEDA for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, VEDA has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. So whether or not you follow energy policy, you've probably heard or noticed that fuel prices and electric rates are going up. Abigail, you alluded to this at the top of the episode. Um, And that premise was baked into Remington Nevin's question.
2: Right. Remington was partly wondering why Vermont's rates are going up if we mostly rely on renewables. One of the people I talked to for this story was someone who's very committed to keeping their utility costs in check.
7: So I got a new roof uh, just before Memorial Day of 2020. And then my solar came in in early June, um, along with two power walls through the Green Mountain Power Program.
2: Todd Dennis reached out to us on Reddit when he heard we were working on this episode. He said that since he bought his house in 2018, his electric rates had gone up 14.63%. So Todd has a pretty good head for numbers, and when he crunched the numbers, he decided it made sense to install some solar at his house.
7: In my spreadsheet, I've saved like $2,500 just based on how much electricity I've used since I've installed the system versus how much they've built me for.
2: Wow. Todd also had a very cute dog, which you can hear in the background of our tape. <laughs> the other thing that was interesting talking to Todd um, was that he had some larger context on Vermont's energy costs.
7: I've seen a lot of people complaining about electrical costs, more so from other states. I know people from New Hampshire and Massachusetts have posted like their costs have gone up like 40 percent or something crazy. Based on what I've read, it seems like Vermont has a little bit more stable um, electrical costs for consumers.
2: So this is largely true that Vermont's rates are actually rising much more slowly than other states, like Todd just said. And that's because of these long-term contracts that our utilities sign with primarily hydropower and nuclear plants. And basically this lets them largely lock in prices for 10, 20, even 30 years at a time.
8: Yeah, um, so... We're, we're less vulnerable to volatility because of our ability to enter into those long-term contracts.
2: So someone who can explain this some more is a guy named T.J. Port.
8: I'm trying to find in the annual energy report here... I, Vermont's overall rates across sectors. I think it is in here. I hope it was. He's the director of
2: planning for the Department of Public Service. Pressure. We sat down in his office in Montpelier, and he actually showed me a chart that illustrates this.
8: Since the start of Russia's war on Ukraine, you know Vermont's rates are still going up. I don't want to minimize that, but they're not going up as much or with as extreme swings as other states.
1: I feel like that's interesting context, Abigail, and not something that I was aware of, um, that Vermont's rate hikes are not so bad compared to other states. So is that because we really don't rely very much on fossil fuels in our
2: power grid? So this is where things get complex. Ah, that word. <laughs> it's We're going to hear it a lot. So real quick, they are kind of A couple ways to look at electricity use. You can look at the electricity we use over a really long period, like a year at a time. That's what we're going to talk about with TJ here. But you can also look at the electricity that we use in real time every moment of every day. And the distinction is that if you're wondering how much of the electricity that I'm consuming by turning on a light in my house comes from fossil fuels, that question can be really, the answer to that question, I should say, can be really different depending on the weather, the time of day, and where you are in the state in some cases. So generally speaking, uh, you know, if it's really sunny and hot, say it's a summer day, you may be getting a good amount of your power from solar. Um, But if it's like six o'clock and you're making dinner for your kids, uh, it's after work, maybe it's nighttime in the winter. Some of that power, a good chunk of it is probably coming from natural gas at a power plant in southern New England. But what TJ is talking about here in this pie chart is that over the course of a year, Vermont gets about a quarter of our electricity, these are the actual electrons that utilities buy from Hydro-Quebec in Canada. And another 12% or so from other hydro resources.
8: About 19% is nuclear. Uh, contracts with the Seabrook Power Station in New Hampshire makes up most of that. Wind, solar, and biomass are around 8 to 10% each. And um, the remainder comes from the New England system mix.
1: I just want to repeat all that because I know that numbers are very hard for the ear. So TJ Port just said 8 to 10 percent each for wind, solar and biomass, about 19 percent nuclear and then like 35 percent hydropower and the remainder from the New England system mix. Abigail, what does that mean, the New England system mix?
2: Yeah. So, Angela, I think here we need to take a quick step back um, and talk a little bit about what The Grid is. Mm. Yeah. So... The New England region has an interconnected grid. There are no real borders. Uh, you might think of it kind of like a big spider web or maybe like a big gutter system okay. with these poles and wires and you know all of the infrastructure that makes the grid being that sort of underlying framework. And there are places where electrons and electricity are being pumped into that system, that gutter system. Maybe it's from a natural gas power plant in southern New England, or maybe it's from a solar array on someone's house, Mm. or from a wind farm in Lowell. And those electrons, they move really, really fast, by the way, almost at the speed of light, but they follow the path of least resistance from where they're made to where they're needed. Now, the other thing to know is those electrons, they don't carry tags. So once they're moving in the grid, they're kind of like this big electron soup where the ones from burning fossil fuels get all jumbled up with the ones that come from solar or from hydropower or from wind. And because they follow the path of least resistance, if you live near a renewable energy project, say a wind farm or solar, And say the sun is shining and the wind is blowing, it's probably fair to say that you're using that clean electricity. But when it's not, you're using electrons from whatever else is being pumped into the grid.
1: Well, Abigail, I love these glorious mixed metaphors you just used to explain our grid. We've got a spider web, a gutter system. Um, So is the New England system mix? It sounds like that's something that flows into our grid.
2: Yeah, exactly, Angela. It's kind of just another input, another source of energy that's moving through that gutter system or spider web, along with all of the hydropower and nuclear. So the thing about that New England mix, though, is that a lot of it comes from fossil fuels. Um, Every year, about half of it comes from natural gas. So that's where you can kind of start to see fossil fuels creeping into Vermont's electric supply. Well, this makes me
1: think back to our question asker, Remington, who was wondering how his utility, Green Mountain Power, can claim to be 100% carbon free if this is how our power grid works um, when we are pulling in fossil fuels when they're needed. So Abigail, can you help us understand this?
2: Yeah, Angela, this is where things get even more complicated. And it gets to the second, much more nuanced answer to Remington's question about how much our grid relies on fossil fuels, because in addition to our actual literal electrons on the grid, New England also has another, much more abstracted way of tracking our energy portfolio, and it involves something called Renewable Energy Credits, or RECs. So, back in 2015, Vermont lawmakers were looking for a way to catalyze the development of renewable energy projects here in Vermont. And they came up with something called the Renewable Energy Standard. So how does the Renewable Energy Standard work? Yeah, so each wind farm or each solar array in New England, basically every megawatt hour of renewable electricity generation out there gets a certificate assigned to it. So, those credits, they can be bought and sold. A renewable energy developer can then kind of make some money twice. They can make money off of selling the electrons that a renewable energy project generates. And then they can also make money by selling the credits that come with it. And when they sell those credits, they're basically selling the right to say that you own renewable energy.
1: Well, can you give us an example of like what that looks like in Vermont when utilities are working with RECs?
2: Yeah. So Just like at the outset, I think it's really good to acknowledge that utilities didn't make these rules. They're just regulated by them. And all that is to say that in Vermont, when one of our utilities, like, for example, a Green Mountain Power, develops a new in-state renewable project, they generate renewable energy credits along with this new input of renewable carbon-free electricity into the grid. And that's all great. And then instead of just holding on to those credits and keeping them for themselves, this is called retiring them, they actually can earn a better return for their ratepayers by selling those credits out of state to another entity that buys them maybe a utility in a state that also has a renewable energy standard that is trying to clean up its power supply to comply with its state laws. And so it creates this kind of like very complicated web of who gets to sort of own the right to say that a renewable, a particular renewable energy project is actually renewable and that they're responsible for that power.
1: Well, Green Mountain Power has come up a few times. And of course, they are Vermont's largest utility
2: Did you try to talk to them for this episode, Abigail? Yeah, I did, Angela. I reached out to them. They didn't want to do a recorded interview for this story, in part because they felt that state regulators would be the best people to answer Remington's question. And we did hear from a regulator, TJ Poore, earlier in the episode But they let me know that their power portfolio right now is 100 percent carbon free on an annual basis and 78 percent renewable. And they're trying to grow the portion of their portfolio that comes from renewable power. Well, going back to
1: Vermont's electricity portfolio writ large, what does that pie chart of our electricity sources look like? After you account for these renewable energy credits that we've been talking about,
2: after Rex, what does it look like? It's a great question, Angela. And the answer is quite a bit different. And if I were to, like, broad strokes sort of summarize what you might see there... Basically, the proportion of our power that comes from Hydro-Quebec is about twice what it was before accounting for Rex. Hmm. And, and what you also see is that some of the renewable energy that I think a lot of us are familiar with on our Vermont landscape, like, you know, most of the solar, actually all of the biomass from, say, McNeil in Burlington or Reigate up in the kingdom, that falls off that map completely. Even Kingdom Community Wind and our mountaintop, our ridgetop wind projects, they don't show up in our power supply anymore at all after Rex.
1: Well, what about fossil fuels? Where do they fit in after Rex?
2: Yeah, so according to one group that's crunched the numbers, after Rex, fossil fuels account for about 6% of Vermont's electricity.
1: Okay, I mean, 6% does seem relatively minor.
2: Yeah, it doesn't sound that bad. And that's because, Angela, honestly, it's not. Like, according to the Energy Information Administration, Vermont's electricity portfolio is actually, like, the most renewable in the country. I feel like
1: there might be, a like, a but coming here, Abigail, because I, I feel like you're winding up for some sort of caveat.
2: <laughs> yes, uh, there are some critiques of this system. And the person who summed them up the best for me was Kevin Jones. He's the director of the Institute for Energy and Environment at Vermont Law and Graduate School. I went to his office between classes to ask him about Remington's question.
5: So depending on how you explore that question, you can have a very different answer because what, what's being So,
2: consumed, again, um, Kevin Jones is referencing uh, REX there. Remember, these are the renewable energy credits that utilities can buy and sell. And he has kind of two critiques of Vermont's renewable energy policy right now. One, he says that Vermont's definition of renewable is just too broad.
5: So there are things that we count as renewable energy that, for example, the state of Massachusetts or the state of New York, um, wouldn't count. you know. And one of those con- controversies is over large-scale hydro.
2: Large-scale hydro and Vermont's relationship with Hydro-Quebec and Canada is something that came up a lot in my reporting. Historically, Vermont has been the only state to allow large-scale hydro to be classified as renewable in New England, though Massachusetts does have a newish policy on the books that may change that. And before we go further, I should just point out that There are a lot of benefits to that type of energy source. It's consistent on-demand power. Like, basically, the only other things we've got right now that do that in New England are fossil fuels and nuclear. Like, we're talking any time of day, whenever you need it. Sun's not shining. No problem. We got tons (laughs) of Canadian hydropower. Mm -hmm. And, Angela, it's affordable and price-stable. Again, with those long-term contracts that we mentioned. So the issue that advocates like Kevin Jones have with large-scale hydro is the really outsized role it plays in Vermont's renewable energy accounting, where utilities are buying a lot of these relatively low-priced wrecks from Hydro-Quebec, partly to keep rates low for their customers. And advocates say, look, the whole point of this policy is to move us off fossil fuels, but by structuring so much of our portfolio around this large hydropower, that's money that is not going to building new renewable electricity projects elsewhere in the New England region.
5: It's uh, really an inexpensive way to uh, to appear that we're leaders in the clean energy transition when in reality our standards are much lower than the surrounding New England states.
2: I think what Kevin is getting at there is that Vermont allows utilities to basically kind of cancel out that fossil fuel use by purchasing credits from existing large-scale hydropower in Quebec. And that hydropower... We've been using that hydropower for a long time in Vermont. So he has some questions about whether or not Vermont's regulations and the way we let utilities trade these wrecks is actually driving the development of new renewable generation, new solar, new wind, on the New England grid in the same way that other states' policies are driving that generation. And then again, Angela, some people will say that the renewable energy standard that allows utilities to do this, well, it's doing the job it was designed to do.
6: And it was always meant to jumpstart the industry.
2: So this is Tony Klein. We had a conversation at his kitchen table in East Montpelier after his pickleball game. He is a former lawmaker, and notably, he was the chair of the House Natural Resources Committee when Vermont's renewable energy standard was being developed.
6: I take some responsibility for, you know, for what we allowed because we were, we were trying to create incentives to grow this industry as fast as we can. We never had a long-term vision that this was going to be in place forever.
2: And kind of two things that I think are important to understand about where Tony's coming from is he says, you know, our grid is all interconnected. A new renewable generation project in Maine or New Hampshire, that's still offsetting fossil fuel input to New England's grid elsewhere and ultimately is making us all less dependent on those fuels in the long term. So from Tony's perspective, this question is sort of irrelevant. The thinking being as long as renewable energy
1: projects are coming online somewhere, that's good, even if you're not accessing them exactly where you live.
2: Yeah, totally, Angela. And I think, too, the other piece that he's getting at here was that This policy, it was designed to jumpstart an industry that was nascent, like super new, really expensive, and also to bring business to Vermont. There were towns in Vermont that didn't get electricity until the 1960s. And so our history around these big switches in technology, it doesn't really bode well for us as a very rural, rugged state with not a lot of people. It's not a given that companies and industries will come here because sometimes it's expensive for them to do it. And so part of what lawmakers were trying to do, according to Tony, is basically create an environment where solar developers would want to do business in Vermont because they didn't want us to get left behind. And they knew that if we were gonna start this transition, they were gonna have to subsidize this change to make it work.
1: Coming up, what's the next phase of our energy transition going to look like?
6: Yes, we want to get our power from the cleanest sources possible, but we want them to be as cheap as possible. And we want our grid to be reliable enough to deliver 24-7 no matter what happens with the weather. And we're nowhere close to either one of those.
1: That's right after this on Brave Little State.
2: Okay, so in the first half of this episode, we talked about Vermont's regulatory framework as it exists now with the buying and selling of these Renewable Energy Credits, or RECs, that basically allow Vermont utilities to demonstrate on paper that their power is clean, even though we're all part of this New England grid that often relies on fossil fuels. And we talked to some people who pointed out that the regulations that are really driving that work, they were written a while ago. Mm. And now we're kind of at this second turning point in the clean energy transition where the question is, what do we need to be able to have all of our electricity come from truly carbon-free resources? And is Vermont okay with what that might look like on our landscape?
8: Mm. Mm-hmm.
2: And there are kind of parallel stories about what could change or what is changing. There's the technology and then there's the policy. Okay. Technology and policy. Why don't we start with technology? Okay. So I went down to New Haven and I went to this place called the Velco substation.
9: That's called a berm. That big, what helps keep the sound in and keeps people the visual impacts out. So the people who are going by Valco for
2: people who don't know is Vermont's grid operator. And I met in New Haven Kerrick Johnson who is their chief information and innovation officer. He kind of gave me a tour of their facilities there. We looked at some big wires and kind of like knobs and some funky things that look like they were out of like Star Trek, <laughs> kind of noisy.
9: It's the Transformer, but your question's well taken. Like, what is the actual hum? That's a good question.
2: So I put Remington's question to Carrick. And basically, he said, right now, Vermont's grid is very dependent on fossil fuels. But he also said, that could change soon with a couple of things that could be coming online in the next couple of years. What Carrick told me is that as a grid operator, there are really three things they need for a fully decarbonized grid to work. One, data storage. We're going to need a lot more of it and broadband as well. Two, battery storage. We're going to need places where we can stockpile electricity from renewables the way that we currently do with liquid fossil fuels.
9: Storage is going to is is playing and will play a much bigger role going forward for long duration, grid level storage.
2: And three, we're going to need renewable resources that can be what's known as firm baseload power. These are resources that have the capacity to run all the time and are reliable and can be pulled out on demand
9: we of all people want to accelerate and move through this, but we're zealous about reliability.
2: And Carrick says we're going to need more transmission, lines and poles to get things like offshore wind and more hydropower to Vermont. There's a ton of money for battery storage in the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really exciting. And Vermont utilities are already starting to invest in the sorts of battery storage that might, say, power part of a community through a power outage. But the next frontier is the sort of battery that is so big it could store enough power to run part of the grid for, say, a week long cold snap in January basically replacing the role that fossil fuels play now on New England's grid.
9: It's an incredibly dynamic space, but we're trying to get to a spot from the grid we have to where we want to be. It took like 120 years or so to get to where we are, and now we want to make the change happen in 10 or 15 years. Now, it's doable. It's doable, but part of that challenge is improving communication, getting better data.
2: Basically, like Carrick was saying, the future of this, like the end game, might even involve things like AI to manage where our electricity comes from and when. Awesome.
1: So what is Velco doing to prepare for this future?
2: One thing that Carrick showed me... was this barn that houses a lot of their operational facilities. It's pretty nondescript-looking from the outside, but they actually took federal regulators there earlier this fall to take a look at something in the basement.
9: This is the fiber strands that you see, that not just existing data, but we're preparing, which is why you see all these servers in unused racks for future growth. When
2: we went down to the basement, what we found was this room with rows upon rows of these metal lockers. And in the metal lockers, there were these big black boxes with blinking lights that were data servers. And basically, Angela, what Carrick told me is that this is the kind of physical infrastructure we're going to need built out at scale to be able to run this future grid.
9: Signals from all all different kinds of uh, signals and stimuli.
2: So they're actually... Doing this work right now, there was a work crew in there when we were checking it out. Hey there. And it's just kind of one example of how we might see our electrical infrastructure change in the coming decades. Very exciting. So, Angela, just to step back here, what Carrick is kind of getting at and what I think a lot of people we've talked to for this episode have alluded to is that there's really this kind of delicate balance here with the clean energy transition. How do you move fast enough to meet the demands of the climate crisis and build resilience, but not so fast that ratepayers get unfairly or even honestly catastrophically saddled with the cost of all these changes that have to happen? Mm. Abigail, it
1: sounds like you are starting to talk about policy.
2: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> let's do it.
2: All right, let's dive in. So if we step back and look at where all of our renewable and carbon-based energy comes from in Vermont, we can see that as a state, we import more than half of our electricity. And some people are saying we shouldn't be saddling other communities with the burden of hosting these projects. Now, it's also important to know, Angela, that no one here is saying that Vermont should or even could get all of its electricity from within our own borders. Mm -hmm. Just that this balance has to shift. So there was kind of this big moment last year that I was covering in the legislature, in our newsroom, Vermont passed its first-ever environmental justice policy into law. We were actually behind a lot of other states in the country on this. Um, But that policy really requires that Vermont do a lot more to engage with and consult frontline communities. So those are the people who are experiencing the impacts of climate change first in Vermont when making decisions about Vermont's environment. And if you look nationwide... Historically, it's been indigenous people, people of color, and low-income communities that have found themselves living next to electricity generation. In Vermont, there's a lot of work going on right now to collect data to try to understand what those communities might be here. But a 2021 study from UVM found in a survey that Vermonters who are not white are seven times less likely to have their own solar panels, which, if you remember from our conversation with Todd Dennis, who we met earlier in the episode, that saves you a lot of money on your electric bill. hmm So... Long story short, as we move off off of fossil fuels, a lot of people are saying we need to build a system that's more just than the old way of doing things. And since it's our regulations that drive this and kind of help perpetuate those systems, some people say it's time to change them. There's a coalition that's formed this year, backed by 350 Vermont and some other prominent environmental groups in the state with some lawmakers in the mix... Still on, way up. We'll start in a minute. A couple weeks ago, they held a press conference at the State House. Um, so it's my privilege to stand with Rev and to stand with these stakeholders to, to call on the state to increase our commitment to 100% renewable energy production and to make uh, as much of, uh, of it as possible within the state. Uh, I could tell you as the chair. So that was House Senator Keisha Ram Hinsdale. She's a Democratic lawmaker from Chittenden County, and she was one of the key players behind the environmental justice bill last year. And basically what this coalition is calling for is that they're saying Vermont should be aiming for 100 percent carbon free power by 2030. That's more ambitious than what our current policies call for. And they want 30 percent of that power to come from new renewable generation within Vermont's borders by 2035. Definitely more ambitious goals.
1: Yeah. So, Abigail, where are things headed in Montpelier at this point?
2: Yeah. So, Angela, there are kind of two camps. Um, The Scott administration is launching a public engagement process over the next two years to get some feedback from the public about what is and isn't working with our current renewable energy standard and regulations around electricity. Um, There are public forums and meetings that are happening this winter through the spring that's going to be ongoing so people can participate in that. And interestingly, for the first time ever, there are actually serious talks about whether as part of that engagement process, Vermont should reach out to communities outside of our borders in parts of Quebec or in southern New England who have hosted the generation that we rely on now to ask them what they want to see. But the legislature, they want to move fast. And of course, you've got the environmental advocates and the renewable energy lobby.
0: The only thing that's going to save our planet is if we start asking ourselves, what are we doing with fossil fuels? Why are we burning these things that we know are destroying the place where we live? And not only the place where we live here in Vermont, but like everywhere.
2: Take Peter Sterling. He's the executive director of Renewable Energy Vermont. They're a trade group that represents mostly renewable developers. And he's someone who wants to move quickly.
0: In a year, we could pass a bill and have it go into effect that would re- tell all Vermont utilities to get 100% renewable energy. That is a very efficient way for Vermont to do its part to stop climate change and get carbon out of the atmosphere.
2: Now, it's important to note, renewable developers, whom Peter Sterling represents, of course stand to benefit financially tremendously if Vermont decides to require that our utilities purchase more power from in-state generation of renewables. So we can just get that out in the open. Mm-hmm. But Peter is also someone who really emphasizes the external cost when Vermont pulls from the regional energy mix for some of its electricity.
0: Very often when we need power, so when it's super cold or super hot and we need emergency power, it comes from a natural gas plant that's located in a low-income community or in a largely minority community, either in Massachusetts or Connecticut. And that's wrong. Vermonters should not be asking those people to live near a natural gas plant just because we want power.
2: And then I talked to someone who felt like a lot of Vermont communities have been excluded or at least not given the same say as industry when it comes to conversations about energy projects here within our borders.
4: We need to have a, a totally new approach to strategic energy siting, one that does not put the developers in the driver's seat, but one that will, it's a collaborative process that where the communities, the utilities, the developers work together to identify the places where the energy is actually needed.
2: This is Annette Smith. She is the executive director of Vermonters for a Clean Environment. Annette is someone who has advocated for a long time for more transparency and clarity about how Vermont approves siting for renewable energy projects. From her perspective, it's just too hard right now for the average person to be a part of that decision making.
4: And yeah, what's it going to cost ratepayers to actually do this transition? I think that's a, a, a conversation that Vermonters have to have and should be a part of. The idea that we're going to do it with wind and solar and batteries requires an assessment of what's that going to cost and who's going to pay for it.
2: So I think here it's worth noting. How we subsidize this transition, it has potentially some big ramifications for ratepayers and who pays for this cleaner power, which we should also note most of the data shows will be much less price volatile than what fossil fuels cost now Mm. once it's built. But as we've talked about, there's a lot that's going to have to change in our environment to get to this carbon-free future. Well, I imagine that
1: a lot of listeners right now might be feeling kind of overwhelmed by the magnitude of this challenge and the complexity, right, there's that word again, um, of moving to a carbon-free future. So, Abigail, what can we all do on an individual level?
2: Yeah, I think Peter Sterling of Renewable Energy Vermont can give some good guidance on this. He says, first off, And I don't think anyone will be surprised to hear this.
0: I mean, the first thing that we all can do as Vermonters is reduce the amount of energy we use. I mean, that would be the the best case scenarios. We don't consume as much electricity. There are no perfect choices for energy anywhere.
2: It's also one place where Vermont is kind of a leader right now. We were actually the first state in the country to have an efficiency utility. That's Efficiency Vermont. But a lot of the data shows with the help of technology and new incentives, utilities could help customers do even more on this. So is there anything then that could happen on the
1: community level on this front?
2: Yeah. So um, I think there are a couple of really interesting ideas here, Angela. Um, first of all, you know, from the developer's perspective, They really feel like if Vermonters want to have cleaner electricity, we're going to need to change some of our attitudes towards development within our state.
0: While most Vermonters support using more renewable energy, very often very good projects run into some um, local opposition from a small group of people. I call them NIMBYs, not in my backyard people. And they don't want to look at a solar panel. So somehow making it... Um, easier to cite necessary projects that will help us reduce our dependence on fossil fuels is going to be really, really important. Changing our attitude toward um looking at renewable energy projects will be critical
2: now, when we think about citing renewable projects within small communities, it doesn't always have to be this contentious debate. There's actually a really interesting example in Bristol. Of a town in Vermont that decided not only did they want solar generation within their community, they wanted to own it themselves and they cited it on their landfill.
6: We had no trouble in Bristol with people saying we shouldn't do it.
2: So here's Richard Butts. He spoke about that at this press conference.
6: Our residents can walk down the hill behind the high school, and they can see where some of their power is being made. It's a very powerful thing, I think.
2: And it's really interesting, Angela, you know, a couple of the advocates that we spoke with earlier, Annette Smith, Kevin Jones, they're really hopeful and optimistic about this idea of community-owned renewable generation, which, if you think about it, is like so different from our old fossil fuel system and the relationships that small communities have historically had with electricity generation.
1: Well, perhaps a topic for a future episode of Brave Little State. But for today, Abigail, I just want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing so much knowledge with us. Um, The level of reporting you have done on this topic, in the words of our intern, May Naguski, is truly off the grid. (laughs)
2: Thanks for having me, Angela. It was a blast.
1: Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to Remington Nevin for the great question. To find out how you can share your thoughts on Vermont's renewable energy policies with our state's Department of Public Service... And to find a tool that shows you what energy source is powering your electricity right now, head to our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can submit your own question about Vermont, sign up for the BLS newsletter, and vote on which question you want us to tackle next. We're on Instagram and Reddit at BraveStateBT. Abigail Giles reported this episode, and I produced it with lots of help from Mae Naguski. Mix and sound design by May and me with production and editing support from our BLS teammates Myra Flynn and Josh Crane Ty Gibbons composed our theme music other music by Blue Dot Sessions Special thanks to Ben Storo, John Dillon, Anne Margolis Matt Cakley, Todd Dennis Mara Hoplamazian, Miriam Wasser Oliver Tully, Jared Duval, Pete Hirschfeld and Brittany Patterson Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public we have support from our station's sustaining members. If you like what you heard today, head to bravelittlestate.org donate. Or just tell your friends to listen. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back soon with more people-powered Vermont journalism. Until then.